Last February, just days after Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, made an appeal to foreign nationals across the globe to join the war effort against Putin's forces. I thank everyone who acts in support of Ukraine, in support of freedom, but the war continues. Zelensky called for friends of peace and democracy to join the resistance against the Russian war criminals. Thousands of people answered the call. Soldiers from over 50 countries have different motivations for risking their lives. It's not just for Ukraine, it's also for Taiwan because I come here for the independence and the freedom. Among them was Rory Mason, the young man from Dumboyne in County Meath who died in combat last week. He was fighting in an active war zone on the front line in the Kharkiv region near the Russian border when he was killed on the 28th of September. When he joined Ukraine's International Legion, Rory Mason was following in the footsteps of thousands of Irish soldiers who have fought for foreign armies throughout history, from the American Civil War to the First World War and the Spanish Civil War. This is a tragic loss of a son, uh, an extraordinarily brave and principled young man. I'm Sarah Chapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, who was Rory Mason and how important is the International Legion to Ukraine's war effort? Ronan McGreevy is a reporter with the Irish Times. Ronan, what can you tell us about Rory Mason, who died last week while he was fighting with the International Legion for the Defence Forces of Ukraine? Sorky, he was from uh, Dunboyne in County Meath, from Larchfield. It's a, it's an estate on the outskirts of Dunboyne. He had a very interesting background. He uh, sat his leave insert in, in St. Peter's College in Dunboyne, which is just down the road from where he lives in 2017. And then he did an archaeology course in IT Sligo. And after that, he has... Uh, Travel the world, really. He's been around Europe for the last couple of years. Um, he's one of these, I guess, these young men who, uh, you know, look to find themselves by traveling abroad, you know, before they decide to, if they are going to, to settle down to a more conventional life. He had been in places like Holland and uh, Denmark, and then he went on to Germany, where he appeared to have joined the um, the International Legion in March this year. What? have those who are close to him said about this decision to join the fight in Ukraine? Is there any indication as to why he would feel compelled to take part in what was happening? Well, his father gave a very eloquent statement, which was released to the media yesterday, in which he said that he was somebody who was uh, couldn't turn the other way when he felt that there was an injustice in the world and that he saw, you know, that he was he was courageous and that he was uh, principled. And, you know, I mean, you couldn't be other, anything other than that to take part in a fight which ostensibly has nothing to do with you, you know. And, uh, you know, his father talked about him being enormously proud of his courage and determination and his selflessness. And he was also somebody who was interested in Eastern Europe because he had he was making an attempt to learn Russian, which which is the kind of linga franca of the old Soviet Union, including Ukraine. Did you learn anything else about him when you were speaking to people from Dunboyne? Are there any other personality traits or things about him that stuck with you from researching him the last 24 hours? I found a level of amerta, which I, I found to be surprising, to be honest, Sorka. I mean, given, you know, the, the widespread support that there is for Ukraine and Ireland and, you know, you see the Ukrainian flags outside St. Peter's College where he went to school and there was very few people who were willing to speak on the record. Um, I couldn't get the parish priest to speak, who's usually dependable in these circumstances. But the people I did speak to, including uh, the councillor Maria Murphy, who knows the family, 
said that they're a very popular family locally, uh, were very well respected and are uh, involved in the GEA and in the local knitting club, actually. And and he was a, a respected young man as well, uh, somebody who stood out even from a very early age as, 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 as being somewhat against the grain. I spoke to uh, somebody who thought him in, in play school, like, I mean, we're talking 20 years ago and said even then that he stood out as being being different to to the other children. So he was somebody who was, I think the best way to describe him was unusual. And Taoiseach Michal Martin also spoke about Mason's death in Ukraine. What did he say? Well, he said that it was very sad that somebody would lose their life in this way, so an Irish person would lose their life in this way. But he also said, you know, that Ukraine was not a place for Irish people to go to, that, you know, there are other ways of supporting uh, Ukraine. Like we, we've seen it in Ireland. We have 55,000 refugees living here. We have one of the highest percentage of, of Ukrainian refugees for per head of population in Western Europe. And, you know, he said it's very sad um, what has happened, but it's not the way to go about helping Ukraine if you're Irish uh, going over there. And also, I mean, you have Leah Varadkar as well. He's tweeting yesterday that, you know, putting it in perspective here that, you know, he was on this young man, uh, Rory Mason, was on the side of right in this conflict. And I think most people in Ireland would would, uh, would agree with that. But whether or not that extends to Irish people going over there to fight or not is another story. Do we know if many other Irish people did the same and went to Ukraine? There's been talk of at least four or five, but I mean, the, the, there's a guy who has been repatriated, um, a guy called Brian Maher, who's also from County Mead. So he was injured in the Kharkiv offensive. So there's quite a few, but the, I think the nature of these people joining up is that you don't really hear about it until afterwards. I mean, very few people I spoke to in Dunboyne yesterday knew who he was or even that he was uh, fighting uh, for Ukraine in, in, in Ukraine. I, I, I don't know if, it's, if even this family knew about it. But there's a few, there's certainly a few who feel that this is, you know, the great moral issue of the day and that they uh, want to become involved in some way, which, which means risking their lives for, for Ukraine. We have a long history of this. I mean, going back to the, the 16th and 17th centuries when, you know, the wild geese left Ireland in 1691 and went to fight in the armies of France against Britain. So you have that tradition, that military tradition going back. And then you had, you know, we, we haven't really spoken about the 50,000 Irishmen who went and joined the British army during the Second World War to fight against, against Hitler. And some of them came back and, uh, were not given a very warm reception and had to keep their involvement uh, in it quiet so you know it's a it's a long long military tradition so he's following in those footsteps i have to say and uh, i think myself he's a hero for what he did um but it's no consolation i guess to his family ronan mcgreevy thanks so much for your time Dan McLaughlin has been reporting on the war in Ukraine for the Irish Times since the conflict began and has met some of the foreign volunteers who travelled to Ukraine to join its international legion since Zelensky made his call out last February. Dan, first I want to ask, what is this international legion for the defence of Ukraine and why was it established? Well, when Russia invaded launched its full-scale invasion at the end of February, um, Ukraine was looking wherever it could for help. So it was looking to the West for weapons, it was looking for funding, 
And just a couple of days after um, the invasion on, on February 24th, Zelensky came out and said, we're also open to taking foreign volunteers who want to come and help Ukraine. Um, at that point, if you remember, you know, very few people thought that Ukraine could really stand up to the might of the Russian army. So Ukraine was essentially thinking we need to get as many people here as we can, mobilize as many of our own people as we can, but also bring in foreigners if they want to help us. So um, a statement appeared um, under Zelensky's name on his website saying we're creating an international foreign legion. And uh, as he put it, uh, paraphrasing a little bit, anyone who wants to come and defend Ukraine, democracy and liberty should think about coming and we'll open our borders to you and you can come and join the fight. Um, and they had a, pr a very strong and, uh, and very quick response from a lot of people who wanted to join that fight. What do we know about these foreigners who joined the Ukrainian war effort against Russia, these people who responded to Zelensky's call out? Where were they coming from? What are their backgrounds? And is it all men or are there women as well? Well, it was really interesting to be in, in Lviv in Western Ukraine at that time because there were hundreds of thousands of people mostly women and children trying to get out of the country to get to safety in, in uh, EU and NATO states. But at the same time, there were a lot of people coming the other way, um, coming by bus and train, those services were still working. And they were a very interesting mix. And it was easy to spot them on the streets of Lviv. Um, most of them, you know, in some kind of khaki or camouflage that they put together carrying rucksacks. But they were all kinds of different ages. You know, you had guys in their late teens all the way through to people in their late 40s and 50s who were coming. Some had military experience. Um, others had none. And they simply responded to that call from Zelensky. They simply saw what was happening in Ukraine and thought, we want to do something. And they thought that something they could do effectively and quickly was just to get to Ukraine and try and sign up in some way when they could. Um, as I say, a, ver a very big mix. I mean, you had... Uh, people coming from, particularly from the United States and from Britain, who had military experience, who'd served in the Middle East. You had people from uh, Eastern European states like Poland and the Baltic states that felt very strongly supportive of Ukraine. Um, they, their own countries were worried about the Russian threat. And they had been, some of them had been on, for example, NATO peacekeeping missions and so on. So they had some experience. Um, others had just gone through military training back in their home countries. But some people came with nothing. Um, and it was almost a sense of people, some of them at least, wanting to come and help. They didn't quite know what they could do. Um, and they were open to doing whatever they could, whether they ended up just volunteering and, for example, delivering supplies or giving medical help or delivering food. Or if they had to, they would pick up a gun and, and go and fight. So a really wide range mm -hmm. of, of experience, a really wide range of countries. Speaking to the, the International Legion yesterday, they said, I think they had representatives from certainly more than 50. I think they said 58 countries had fought in the Legion mm -hmm. at some point. So, um, so a very wide representation. And on the male versus female, did you see any women or was it predominantly men who were coming? Almost entirely men, as far as I can tell. I mean, one thing I can say is that some of these fighters, volunteer fighters, have um, got quite a big social media following while they've been in Ukraine. They've been posting okay. things about their experiences and they include women. I wanted to say there was one woman, I think from, from Scandinavia, who's who's joined the fight, and she has um, certainly gained a lot of followers online uh, chronicling her experience. But definitely the, the overwhelming majority is male. You mentioned that some of these people have military experience, others have none at all. So did they get training when they reach Ukraine? Again, um, it's a mixed experience, uh, to, you know, from, from what people have told me over there. Um, 
Some people went through um, a kind of formal process that was set up by Ukraine to go to your uh, Ukrainian embassy in your home country, um, make the embassy aware that you want to join, and then go through a few kind of formal steps to get to Ukraine. Other people just showed up and tried to find whatever they could on the ground. Um, one of the kind of standout and shocking experiences of early in the war was an incident on, I think it was March the 13th, certainly middle of March, when a training area in western Ukraine between the Polish border and Lviv was hit by uh, a salvo of Russian cruise missiles. Um, dozens of people were killed. We don't know how many. But it seems that there were certainly some uh, foreigners, members of the International Legion there, training at that time. So the, the, the was, there was an attempt to set up some training. Um, obviously, that was a shocking experience for a lot of people who decided not to stay on after that. But there have been some formal um, training camps and some less formal, where people have just been kind of uh, sent out to a battalion, sent out to a unit and expected to get some training on the ground. Um, so again, a very mixed and, and diverse picture when it comes to training. And Dan, you've met some of these foreign fighters who uh, travelled to Ukraine um, earlier this year. There was one man, Matthew Robinson, a former British soldier who had also spent time in Iraq as a US military contractor. What did he tell you about his motivations to join the fight in Ukraine? Yeah, it was very interesting to speak to him. Um, I met him a few months ago just outside uh, Kiev in Irpin, a town which had been occupied by the Russians and where atrocities had taken place early in the war. Um, at that point, he was training, uh, training Ukrainians, actually, um, the local kind of self-defense league to protect Irpin if ever the Russians made it back there again. And he said he'd mm. come to, he expected to be a frontline fighter, but it turned out that he ended up training. But he said that for him, um, there were a couple of key reasons. One was seeing what was happening in Ukraine, seeing that Ukraine was clearly the victim was clearly facing a really powerful aggressor and needed all the help that it could. And he had the skills to help, he thought. So he traveled from Spain to Ukraine to offer those skills. Also, he said on a more personal level for him, he'd served in the British Army, as you mentioned, and he was a, worked as a military contractor for the United States in Iraq for several years. He said that he made lots of money there, but um, in some ways it felt like blood money because he didn't feel like foreign forces should be there. He didn't feel that local people welcomed them at all. And he was very uncomfortable with the whole, uh, the whole experience and the fact that he was still actually, the way he described it, living quite a nice, comfortable life on the money he'd made then. So he felt like this was some way of compensating or, or atoning for uh, the Western military experiences in, in, in Iraq and elsewhere in recent years. You mentioned that he had obviously previous military experience. Um, but what did he make of the people who were turning up with no experience at all in Ukraine? Were they more of a hindrance than a help? He said that was certainly a potential problem. I mean, he had um, he had come across uh, basically looking for a way to get into Ukraine and link up with the International Legion. He said his first experience was quite sobering because he got to Krakow Airport and he saw them the the International Legion representatives of it standing there in the airport with a big sign saying, basically, International Legion, if you want to come and fight in Ukraine, let's go. So mm. he thought, OK, this is probably, it's certainly unorthodox, but it might be the quickest way to uh, to get to Ukraine and help out. So he got on the bus. And even on that bus ride, he said, from uh, Poland to Ukraine, people were drinking. One guy in particular, he said, got steaming drunk 
became convinced that the bus driver was actually Russian and was driving them to Russia. So they had to decide, and he pulled a knife and tried to attack the driver. And he had to be, and other people along with him on the bus had to basically disarm this guy, calm him down. And he began to wonder, you know, who he was potentially getting into combat with. At the same time, he said he saw that a lot of people were um, very blasé about operational security. You know, they had their, they were taking photos, they were posting stuff online. They had their location services online, which would make it easy for, to track them if the Russians wanted to do that with their own signals intelligence and electronic intelligence and surveillance. So he got a very, he got a... a, a uh, you know, a kind of shock when he first arrived, and and like a lot of people with military experience, like him, he that really gave him gave him pause and um, made him reevaluate exactly how he was going to about go, going to go about helping Ukraine. And we know that some of these foreign fighters, um, including a man called Ivan Farina, who travelled from Dublin and who was interviewed by the Irish Times earlier this year, did decide to return home to be with their families after coming face to face with the the extent of the violence and the destruction taking place in Ukraine. Dan, did you speak to anyone else who decided to leave? And what did you learn about their decision to, to go home? I spoke to other people who had um, kind of come into the country with people who subsequently decided to leave. And they told me mm. about those kind of stories. They told me about the, the incident at the training camp, which I think was the one which convinced uh, the man you mentioned there, Ivan Farina, to go home. You know, a large number of cruise missiles striking the camp in the middle of the night must have been an absolutely terrifying experience, especially for people with no military experience. So I think a lot of people at that point decided to, to go back and to leave. Other people, from what I've heard, they came across people who had real military experience, um, you know, Americans, uh, British ex-servicemen, people from other countries who'd fought, and they realized talking to them that maybe they were going to be out of their depth. Um, also, when they saw that some of the training was kind of quite informal and that they may be heading to the front sooner than they, than they expected, they realized maybe it's not for them. Um, so a lot of people at that point just left. I mean, there was no effort, obviously, on Ukraine's part to keep them in the country if they felt like it wasn't for them. And I met some or people told me about other people who had simply decided that combat clearly wasn't for them. And they decided to take up another role, whether it was helping mm. as a volunteer helping with giving, you know, giving medical aid or food aid to people on the border, or even trying to organize logistics for the Ukrainian armed forces, you know, how to get supplies to them that were much needed um, from abroad. So even if people decided not to fight, uh, I think a significant n number of them tried to find other ways that they could help the, um, the Ukrainian war effort. Are there any estimates, Dan, on how many international volunteers might have been killed in Ukraine since last February? Again, I can't get official figures. I mean, Ukraine itself doesn't give any kind of convincing official figures about its own casualties um, never, for its own um, servicemen, never mind foreign volunteers. But there are figures out there that suggest it's in the dozens. I've seen figures uh, quoted in several places that suggest more than 60 foreigners have, kill have been killed. Um, or some have also been captured. And obviously, from Russia's point of view, it can be useful for them from a propaganda perspective, to capture foreigners. Um, so they would be also, in some way, even if they're not particularly capable on the battlefield, they would be potentially a high-value target for Russia when they're looking to um, stock up their own fund of prisoners for exchange or, or as I say, for, for propaganda purposes. Russia has repeatedly claimed that they are fighting against these so-called foreign mercenaries. 
as part of their propaganda. Do we know what proportion of fighters on the Ukrainian side are actually foreigners? It's extremely small. I mean, the the Ukrainian defense minister in recent weeks has said that the country now can now call on a million fighters under arms. Now, I think that that is an exaggeration. But certainly, Ukraine has hundreds of thousands of its own troops who it can call on now. Ukraine does not have a problem with with manpower. Um, and when we look at the numbers, again, it's we just have to estimate uh, the number of foreigners who are involved. But I would put it, in terms of foreigners who are available for Ukraine to call upon, I would put it in the low thousands. And at any one time fighting on the front, it may just be hundreds. Um, but again, these are rough estimates. But, you know, we saw in the weeks after uh, Zelensky made his call for, for volunteers to come and help Ukraine, Ukraine said about 20,000 people had answered that call. But again, the vast majority of those probably didn't either didn't end up coming or didn't end up staying for long in Ukraine. And now, more than seven months into this extremely damaging and deadly war, a very small proportion of even those who did come, I think, are still in Ukraine and are still actively involved in fighting. This international legion has definite echoes of the international brigades of the Spanish, of the Spanish Civil War, which um, took place obviously over 80 years ago, but had a lasting and enduring legacy. What kind of legacy do you think this international legion will leave behind? I think it will have a particularly strong legacy for um, Ukraine's relations with with nations that have helped it out. Um one thing Matthew Robinson said when I spoke to him is that the bond is very, very strong between um, foreigners who've come to help out, whether they're training or fighting, and the Ukrainians who they're fighting alongside or who they are training. Um, and I think that will endure that bond. I mean, speaking to Ukrainians, they're extremely grateful for all the help they get from foreign countries, particularly people who come and help out, whether it's with a weapon or whether it's volunteering, whether it's helping with um, with uh, bringing in supplies, whether it's offering medical support, all these things are extremely precious to Ukrainians. Um, and I think speaking to people um, from um, countries all over the world who've made the trip to Ukraine and are helping out, they feel very, very strongly um, involved in this struggle as well. And when Ukraine finally comes out of it, whenever that will be, there will be an enormous job of reconstruction ahead. Um, and I think all the connections that are being made between Ukraine and foreign partners now and foreign individuals who are going to help, um, all that will, will, will um, potentially serve Ukraine very strongly when it, when it comes to rebuilding the country after the conflict. Dan McLaughlin, thanks as always for your time and take care. That's all for today. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and Aideen Finnegan. In the News will be back on Monday. 